What's your business worth? No, no, really, what's your business worth? And that's coming up next on Experience Leadership. Welcome to Experience Leadership, a podcast that helps small business owners and entrepreneurs just like you dare to be the exception. Join our host, service expert and master of experiences, Mark Hain, as he uncovers relevant and timely content to help you develop your business. So you can take the time to work on your business, not just in your business. Here's your host, Mark Hain. Welcome to this episode of Experience Leadership. This is where small business owners and entrepreneurs pick up core skill sets to help them work on their business, not just in their business. I am your host, service expert and master of experiences, Mark Hain. And today, my guest is mindset and intelligent work coach, John Mill. We will be talking about how to set and achieve growth targets for your business and the steps you need to take to increase your business's value by 10 times. And we'll get to that in just a moment. If you've been following me for any length of time, you know how much I love bringing you content each and every week. I was just telling a friend yesterday how blessed I am that subject matter experts have been willing to come onto this show to share their passion and their expertise. This whole show has really become my passion project. A special thanks goes out to you for tuning in to this episode. I'm so glad that you're here. If you haven't done so yet, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to this podcast? And while you're at it, feel free to go ahead and follow me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and of course, Instagram. As a business owner, you invest your blood, sweat, and tears into your business. You put in the hours. You do the work. Surely your business is worth what you think it is. In an IBIS world report, 98% of business owners in the U.S. don't know the true value of their company. That's 200 million small businesses nationwide. So that brings me to our question of the day. How important is it to you to know the value of your business? Have you ever looked into it? Go ahead and share your experience on social media and make sure that you hashtag your comments with hashtag experience leadership so that I can find you and we can all have and be part of this conversation. My guest today is mindset and intelligent work coach, John Mill. In the last 10 years, John has developed his five mindsets of intelligent work which, by the way, is also the title of his forthcoming book. John, welcome. It's so nice to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Mark. So, John, before we get into the deep and the dirty, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do for your clients? So what I do is I was a tax lawyer for 25 years working with owner-managed clients, and I did a lot of litigation with CRA and tax people. And one of the big topics for CRA is business valuation. So I developed quite a lot of expertise in that. And what I noticed is that with owner-managed clients, their businesses have a very low valuation. And so I set out to try to understand that problem and to solve that problem and understand it better. So that's what I work on. I work in three primary ways. One is hire your buyer, which is about setting a transaction where the owner transfers their business to employees or managers, some of it or all of it. So that's a transaction framing. 
And originally that included the value creation work, but the value creation work took on a life of its own. And it's now become the five mindsets of intelligent work. And I'm writing a separate book on that. And the way I actually engage on that is to do a process that's called improvement diligence with the client's business, as opposed to the idea of due diligence, which is a way of finding problems and reducing the purchase price. And so improvement diligence is the mirror image of that. We're looking for ways to improve the business and increase the purchase price. That's the wow. that's fundamentally what I work on. Nice. I look forward to digging a little deeper into that. In dealing with your clients, are you seeing any trends that you think is worrisome as far as the marketing of people's businesses? Well, the whole system is fundamentally flawed in terms of how small businesses are dealt with. If we're talking businesses essentially with anything less than $5 million a year of EBITDA, that's where the big M&A firms kind of stop. And then there's a whole other level of smaller M&A firms that come down to say maybe a million dollars a year of EBITDA or 750 or something. But the problem with the large transaction is it's a very expensive thing to organize. So you need a lot of lawyers, a lot of accountants, and it's it's not uncommon in deals that the expenses of the deal will run into the three, the four, the five million, and that just makes no sense in a small business. And the problem is, is there's a substantial bias against owner-managed businesses where they're incredibly undervalued. And I'll just make one anecdote of that, and we can we'll deal with another question. But there's a really good book written by Harvard Business Review called The Guide to Buying a Small Business. And it's written for MBA grads. And the authors of the Harvard MBA Guide to Buying a Small Business, who are professors, are saying to the Harvard Business School MBA graduates that this is the third option, buying a small business after startups or big company careers. And they're describing it as an incredibly lucrative opportunity. And of course, these are the best small businesses that there are, right? So they say there's about 200 to 400,000 of these types of businesses available. And the structure of the deal is because they're owner-managed businesses, it makes them very difficult to sell. So when you sell an owner-managed business and the owner leaves, it falls apart. So it really does not have a lot of value to investors. So the guide to buying the small business by Harvard solves that problem by introducing the MBA graduate as the manager, and there's a pool of investors who put up the money to buy it. Now, the investment return is 25% a year plus if there's financing. That compares to Berkshire Hathaway's 20% a year. So it's a very rich private equity return. And the reason they say, they explain this in detail, so it's a real eye-opener is because owner-managed businesses are so, the valuations are so low, the multiples are like three to five for these kind of businesses and smaller businesses, one to three, right? Wow. So whereas a larger business, exactly the same business would be six to 12 times would be the multiple. And that's even low because the average, according to McKinsey, for larger businesses, right? Well, last in 2019 was the stat I had was 11.6 times multiple. That was the average, right? So they're saying, what Harvard is saying is, look, if you have an enduringly profitable, high-quality small business and you can pick it up at a four times multiple, that's an extremely lucrative deal. So on the one hand, what really bothers me, Mark, is that on the one hand, we have everybody telling the small business owner, like you started, which is the normal thing, is you're really overvaluing your business. Businesses are not worth anything. 
And on the other hand, we're having the investors saying, oh, my goodness, can you believe what an incredible deal that is? So there's a real disconnect there. And that's really what I work on solving. Yeah, nice. And so you're saying that part of the problem that we're seeing right now is that with if people own their own businesses, if they're also managing their business, that becomes the reason why the valuation is so low. That's correct. So 90% of all businesses are owner managed. Yes. So it's it's very normal. It's very common. So I say there's four gates that a business passes through. The first one is finding a product or service that you can sell at a profit. Mm-hmm. The second gate is identifying employees that you can gainfully employ so that the employees now start generating profit, right? So the third one is the, uh, my mind is slipping me here for a moment. (laughs) So I can't remember the third one. But the fourth one, which is really important, which only less than 2% of all businesses pass through this. So less than 2% of all businesses are more than 100 employees. So less than 2% of all businesses, oh yes, sorry, I remember the third one now. So the third one is the surviving what I call the startup cut. So the startup cut is where 90% of businesses do not survive past the first 10 years of business, right? So to be in business for more than 10 years, like to be 20 and 30 years is a significant achievement. That means the business has a very solid foundation. So of those businesses that have survived the startup cut, less than 2% of those grow past 100 employees in size. And we know that because Stats Canada has the has those numbers off the tax returns, right? Mm-hmm. So the difference, so just in summary, find your product, hire your employees, survive the startup cut. The next gate, the fourth gate, is becoming owner-independent, relieving yourself of the management. So it's not something to be critical about. It's an amazing achievement to get to an owner-managed business that's, you know, enduringly profitable, as Harvard Mm -hmm. calls it. That's one of the most difficult achievements there is. And, you know, if Harvard is describing your business as one of the most valuable investments they can find, assuming that, you know, this is assuming you have like maybe $2 million a year of EBITDA, right? A larger, Mm -hmm. a larger, the best of the best small businesses. There is nothing to be embarrassed or ashamed about. And what I say to people is, If you own that business and Harvard is telling their MBA grads, the smartest people in the world, that this is the best opportunity you can find, why in gosh sakes would you sell it to them for that, right? Why wouldn't you do what they're telling their students to do, get a manager and monetize it yourself? That's the basic core message. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper into that and we'll do that right after this. When the spotlight shines on your business, are customers applauding or yawning? In other words, how is your business performing? Make your business a star with the new book, Lights, Camera, Action, Business Operational Excellence Through the Lens of Live Theater by Mark Haim. Mark uses his business and acting experience to help you see your business like a live show so you can create a performance your customers will never forget. Buy Lights, Camera, Action today at your favorite online retailer or directly at markhaim.com. I am speaking with John Mill, and we're talking about this idea of having a manager come in to manage a business and making the owner independent. John, how hard is this as a transition for business operators? Somebody who's had their business for 20, 25 years, how hard is it for them to make this transition? Yeah, that's a really good question, because the whole focus of the entire process is to make the job easier 
to have the owner work less and ultimately get to the point where the owner has really nothing left that they're required to do, that they're only working on those things that they choose to do. So in theory, it should be, and it can be a very easy transition, especially if you have the right people that are eager and understand, hey, look, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity that you're going to have. And, you know, I had an interesting conversation with a manager recently where I said, well, listen, I understand that, you know, signing up to pay the overtime that, you know, you're going to be responsible for paying three million bucks. It sounds like a lot of money and certainly in your circumstance, but in the context of what this business can do, it's, it really isn't. And once, once he stepped into that, that was fine. But the, really the big barrier is the fixed mindset, right? People don't have a growth mindset. I mean, we're taught the fixed mindset in school. We're taught that there's A students, B students, C students, and we get pegged. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that's with that intelligence is a number and there's nothing we can do about it. And that, you know, employees are not capable of being managers and all those fixed mindsets. And it just, that's, so that's where I start. That's the first mindset I start with because it just simply isn't true. Mm-hmm. Warren Buffett says that knowledge compounds, our knowledge builds like compound interest, right? So the more we learn, and we have no idea, we have no idea how much we can learn. All we know is that Warren Buffett's still reading 500 pages a day past 90. And still, you know, and the studies show that, you know, if you do that, and most people will not have any cognitive decline. In fact, your cognitive ability continues to increase. You know, so we don't know what the limit is there, but we can do a lot. But that's what I find is the owners just simply have a really hard time thinking that anybody other than themselves, they have a real anxiety about anybody. It's just faster and easier to do it myself. And they just they just have that's the challenge, not the actual work. It's the psychological kind of anxiety piece. I wonder how much of that also jumps into this idea that people's worth are tied to their jobs and bringing in a manager who is essentially going to be running the business for you kind of strips you maybe a little bit of your identity. Maybe that's where some of that fixed mindset. Oh, 100%. From well. Yeah, yeah. I think, that, I think that I would say that's a small corner of it. It's important, very valid, very true. But I just think that there's more to it than that. Yeah. Is this sense of identity, sense of self-worth, the sense of parenthood? You know, it's yep. your baby. I mean, yep. there's just a lot of things going on. And it's for a lot of people, they, you know, they just have a very difficult time. It probably won't. So it really has to be for somebody that wants to do it mm-hmm. and wants to wants to engage in the process. Yeah. And again, the whole purpose of in this in our context today, the whole purpose of bringing in a manager is so that two investors coming in, you have a business that doesn't rely on the back of the owner. So in most of the cases, I've never done a case with an investor. In all of the cases, and hire buyers specifically designed to exclude the investors, because why do we want a group of people in there owning 80% of the business demanding a 25% plus return on their investment every year, right? And mm-hmm. being quite hostile if it's not produced. I mean, we just, we just don't need that noise in the background. Why not share it between the owner and the manager? Sure. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that that's a, gives the manager a real reason to be there as well, especially if they're doing what they're paid to do, right? <laughs> Is that they're there to, to manage the business. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a normal job. It's mm-hmm. not a ridiculous job. The business is proven, right? It's been in business for 20 years. Mm-hmm. It's just people don't realize how rare that is. Like statistically, there's a lot of those businesses. There may be a million of them. But, you know, 
compared to the population and compared to all the failures and everything, that's that's a very low number that make it that far. Yes. Right. So so to me that I have a tremendous amount of respect for anybody that's been able to pull that off. And that needs to be acknowledged by everybody that not just take it for granted, not just think that this is, oh, well, this is, you know, and the manager just has to do the job of management. Mm -hmm. And in essence, I'll give you the formula because busy is a real problem. We don't want people who are busy and hectic and frantic, right? That just doesn't, that means that they're not focusing. And the worst is when you get to the point where you just say, you know, wow, I just had this day. I just, I was so slammed. I just got nothing done. Well, that's the feeling of waste and that you weren't creating value. So we got to get, we have to get people really focused in into what is the value that the customer wants to pay for. How are we creating value? And if you're spending all of your day creating value, if you're a manager and you can look back and honestly tell yourself, it's not for anybody but you, you can tell yourself, yeah, you know what? I created value all day. I had a very productive day and you still have more value creating work to do, you need to hire somebody else. Mm -hmm. The answer is not to work. I had one manager working a thousand hours a year out of a 3000 hour a year work schedule. This guy was just working like crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And a thousand hours were going for inspection of other people's work. He thought that's what it meant to be a leader. And I said, this is all waste, right? Because these guys are telling me that they're not finishing their work. I asked them why. I said, well, because he just comes in and changes it anyway. So we, why would we bother, right? I said, how are we going to double in size? Where are you going to get another thousand hours a year from? And so we got rid of that. And then, of course, we were able to, to double in size, right? So it's really, in many ways, honestly, Mark, it's, it's really astounding when you start to see how much waste it, it, there really is. And I can give you an example of that, if that's helpful. Yes, please. So in the Second World War, and I would like to, after this, uh, think about this, prime yourself up for, we'll talk about the uh, example that you were giving me. I think mm -hmm. it was an auto repair shop. I really, I think that that's a classic example because I also don't want to stay in the clouds here in the sense that, you know, oh my God, yeah, that's good for Harvard and that's good for all these guys. And yeah, if you have a $2 million a year business and all this stuff, yeah, that's great. It's really important, Mark, and maybe you can help me with this, is, is we got to transmit the message that this is possible for anyone right? Even a one-person business. And this is accessible. The reason that I use Harvard is, is I guess it might be the lawyer in me where I'm trying to say, look, the best people in the world are doing this, yes. right? This is not something that's fly by night, right. right? So, but that doesn't mean that only the best people in the world can do this, right? That means we can, we can copy them. Maybe we won't be as, maybe we can't throw the ball as far as they can, but you know what? We can still throw the ball, right? So back to my example of waste. So in World War II, all of the factories emptied and all the um, able-bodied people jumped on the boats and went to Europe. And so to replace the factory workers, there's the biggest hiring of housewives and farmers and anybody that could, could work was hired to replace. So they needed to train people really fast. And there was hundreds of trades. And the one example that stands out is lens grinding. And lenses, of course, are very important for gun sights and binoculars and telescopes and all those things. And so it previously took six years to train an apprentice, which is still in these days not, is sort of common. You hear things like that. But they couldn't wait six years. So they developed training programs, hundreds of them. And the lens grinding one was able to get somebody up to speed as a lens grinder within three months by the beginning of the war. Well, they kept improving the process, and by the end of the war, with the 
process improvements and the training programs, they got their training time down to three weeks. Now, if you think about that for a moment, three weeks, six years, three weeks. So six years is more than 300 weeks. Three weeks is 1%. So what that means is that 99% of that time was wasted, right? And it's just phenomenal if you are not really clear on creating value. And I don't know that I've met very many people that feel comfortable that, yes, I know in every moment when I'm creating value, right? And that's real. that probably is, of all of the things we want to learn, that's probably the, the most important. But that's really, really critical. And that's where we find that we get rid of lots of wasted time and we slow right down and we can really, you know, do the job well at a high level and enjoy doing it. It's amazing that you mentioned that because as you were saying, talking about this World War II issue and the what needed to happen in order to adjust to the crisis, all I could think about was all the adjustments that businesses have had to make over the pandemic, especially when it came to remote workers. Because prior to the pandemic, when I would go to a business operator and I say, you know, why exactly does this person need to be sitting here on their computer? Why can't they be working from home? And they go, well, because I I don't know what they're doing. (laughs) The irony is they could be sitting at their computer. You still don't know what they're doing. They could be shopping on Amazon. They could play solitaire. Not that solitaire is a thing anymore, but they could be doing anything that they want to be doing sitting in the presence of you. And it was really this idea of trust was lacking and the pandemic has forced us to be more trusting, even though, you know, I think the first three months of the pandemic, all this software came out on how to track what people are doing on their computers and so on, but nobody had the time to follow up with it. So I think it's really interesting because this idea of waste also applies to today with the pandemic. I mean, we're eliminating all the commute times and so on by having people work from home. And people are being much more productive now in the scheme of things. So it's, it's really interesting that you made that correlation with World War II and that we're actually seeing that correlation today as well. Well, it is an interesting correlation. And I've told my sons that is that, you know, I, my one son went back to the football team at Western University in Ontario. And he said it was just an amazing kind of experience for the football team to get together after having been apart for 16 or 18 months. Mm-hmm. And it would, but it would just like a, almost, he didn't use these terms, but it sounds sort of like a, a religious experience in a sense. It was really something for everybody to come back together. And, you know, they, he said, yeah, the bonds and the sort of the friendships seem a lot more intense now than they, they had in the past. And I said, and I said exactly the same thing to him. I said, you know what? You know, when you're talking to your grandchildren, this is going to be like World War II was, right? This is a big, big deal. And what we're seeing is the acceleration of digital transformation, which is the fifth mindset, the digital mindset, right? Because that's where we have to get to whenever we do we do something. And, and it's a lot easier than people think. Mm-hmm. But with remote working, for instance, as an example, they did a, McKinsey had done a survey on about, I don't know, however many 500, 1,000 CEOs or whatever they do in their big surveys, asking them, how long did you originally intend that it would take to transfer to remote working? And the response was, on average, 465 days if they had started. This didn't mean they had started, right? Mm. But they would assume that it would take 465 days to implement. Actual time to implement, nine days. Yeah. Amazing, right? eh? Because they were forced to do it, right? 
Yeah. The, well, you had a choice, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I take a very much a lean approach. I, I do not, I am not skeptical or suspicious of employees. I know that most employees are not sitting on their computers looking at Facebook, and they may do that a little bit. But most employees and studies, time and motion studies have demonstrated. So in construction, for instance, it's the most wasteful activity there is. 30% or something of, of all time is spent actually adding value. So adding value in construction means banging and sawing and drilling and, and those types of things. That's adding value, right? But in construction, because they're remote work sites, there's a lot of issues about transportation back and forth. And like they just announced, it's, it's just astounding in this day and age, right, is that the, one of the biggest streets in downtown Toronto is going to have a large section closed, like a six-block section, right in the center of the highest rent district in the country. And the six-block section will be closed for how long? For five years, because they're, they're doing subway work underneath six blocks. But it's, it's going to the whole entire six blocks will be closed for five years because of subway. Now, you tell me there's no waste there? I mean, it's ridiculous, right? It's amazing. It's because I guess the point, you know, that we, we've come to is that when people are forced to compromise and forced to move things forward, things will happen. When we just take on the planning phase of this is what needs to happen. It's kind of, you know, it reminds me of Star Trek, you know, when Scotty, when Scotty was training a replacement and, and somebody <laughs> said, you know, Kirk asked him, how long will it take you? He it says it'll take two hours. And Scotty got went crazy and said, no, you have to tell him it's, it's going to take, you know, 14 hours. Because that way, yeah. when you deliver in two, it's going to sound fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, you know, when you said yeah. about the transitioning to remote work and it actually took nine days versus what people, plan when they're planning it, are thinking, hey, well, we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to do this, we have to just do it and then solve the problems as you go, right? And that's, the, that's very right. much the lean mentality. John, this is really interesting. Could you let everybody know how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, I have a website called intelligentwork.com. And the easiest way is to send me an email at john at intelligentwork.com. Or I'm also on LinkedIn. Nice, nice. I'd like to get into really the delve into the concrete steps that owners can do to really take what you're talking about today and let's compress it into what does it take to 10 times their company's value? And we'll do that right after this. When you're delivering an important speech to a huge audience, it's easy to lose your place or go way over time. Give yourself an advantage with the Pro Speaker Presentation Speech Timer app. No more checking your watch or calling for time. The Pro Speaker Presentation Speech Timer app keeps you on track with easy-to-see timers, even changing color for visual prompts during your speech. And you can set audio cues to practice or set it to vibrate so you don't even have to look. Be the pro you know you are. Download the app at speakerpresentationtimer.com. I hope that you are getting tons of value from today's episode. We, we're just like peeling back and uncovering the gold. John, you mentioned something about small businesses lasting 10, 20, 30 years. I know that I, the recent statistic I saw was that 70% of new startups won't last more than five years, which is scary. It's, it's scary that people put their time, their investment and so on in creating a new business and it won't last more than five years. And, it, and it's frustrating especially when I see like I'm in a small community of 6,000 people and I'm seeing that the door fronts are constantly turning over and people aren't able to sustain it over a long period of time. But the other thing that I realize is that the people who are in businesses, you know, 
maybe operations. I heard a stat that uh, operations older than 10 years are being run by people who are very close to retirement age. And so when do they need to start thinking about this idea of transitioning into the retirement or succession planning and that sort of thing? So the problem is, is that I guess a lot of people think that their business can sell for something. And, and that's where a lot of people get in the trap is they assume that they will be able to sell and finance their retirement. And so that's one of the issues. But really, the experts say, when should you think about transitioning your business? Truly, the I know this is a silly answer, but the true answer is, you know, the day you start planning it, the day you start your business plan, is you should be thinking about, okay, and really what you want to be, that's very practical and not silly, is you want to be sale ready at all times, right? You don't want to be in a position where you as the owner manager, if you have some kind of a crisis and you have to leave, the business collapses, right? That doesn't happen often, but statistically it does happen. There is disability insurance for those kinds of things. So, you know, it, it does happen. But the closer you get to the retirement, you know, because what are the statistics? I don't know the exact statistics on having a three or four, three to six month disability from a fall or something between the ages of, say, 60 and 75. It's pretty high, right? So you really should take steps to get sale ready. And what that means is you have to be redundant, or let's use a better term, you have to be in a position where the business can run without you. Mm. And especially, I, I talk to owners and they're getting tired. Like it, it is tough when you get into your 60s, your late 60s, to still be putting in 70 hours a week. I mean, it's just week after week after week. It's just tough. Yeah, I know a gentleman who's still running his hotel and he's just turned 80 and he's still running his hotel. And it's like, it's amazing that he can still do it. But how much better would it be for him to be kind of the sage that his manager could go to for advice and he could become the mentor rather than the operations manager? Right? I mean, that's it's not more complicated than that, Mark. Yeah. So what steps can business operators do starting today? Like somebody watching this now, gets off this recording and says, you know what, now I need to strategize this. What can they do to increase the value of their business and achieve their growth targets right now? So you have to understand there's really, there's two things that businesses are very small owner, owner business. First of all, are you going to sell, right? Mm -hmm. So if you want to sell, then the best way to sell is to be able to put yourself in a position where the business is independent of you so that you know, you don't end up having to work, you know, because a lot of businesses, they request that the owner stay on for two or three years to work, right, during that period of time. So if a business is independent, I heard one woman talk about, you know, she compared it to being in prison, doing the her, her, uh, her standards and writing out all the instructions and everything on how the business ran, like a franchise kind of a manual. And so somebody asked her why she did that. And she said, well, I'd rather be in prison for three months doing this than have to sign up for three years after I sold the business to continue working, right? Yeah. And apparently the story turned out that when she sold her business, she was able to leave in two weeks. So whatever it takes, right, in terms of standards. And one of the big things about value that makes it non-transferable is it's not that the value is not there. So when people are saying to owners, you just have to accept that your business is not this valuable, that isn't true. It's only true in the sense that it's not valuable 
in the fair market. So the fair market value is low because that's reflected as to what people will pay for. However, there's intrinsic value in the business and intrinsic value means business, means value you can create is there, the cash flow is there, the business is enduringly profitable. So it's worth more than four times earnings. I mean, four times earnings means the expectation is the business will not last much more than four years, right? So if it's been enduringly profitable for 20 years, and what you have to do is you have to understand that when you're doing everything yourself, and when it's easier and faster to do it yourself, what that means is, is that the instructions about how to run the business are in your head, right? And that it's subverbal, subverbal IP, I call it. So subverbal IP stands for subverbal intellectual property. Intellectual property means the type of property like business instructions, business processes, patents. I'm not talking about a patent, but that's a form of intellectual property. So the idea is, is that you, the owner, understand you're a professional. You are a pro league player in your own business. You know everything about it. But because you haven't taken the time to sit down and write it out into an easy to follow diagrammatic chart, nobody else does. And that's why the business relies on you. So the answer is very simple. Get somebody you trust. There has to be a relationship of trust. And some people never feel comfortable with trust. And so this is not recommended for you if you don't feel comfortable with trust. But if you feel comfortable with trust and you trust somebody, then the manager can come in and here's here's how it works. It's so simple. Okay, Mr. Manager and Miss Mrs. Manager, it's your job to write out all those instructions and standards and everything. Interview the owner, learn it. You do the writing out. And, and what that does, first of all, the owner doesn't have to do it. But that's not the only reason. What happens is, is that trains the manager. The process of putting all the work instructions together and creating the manual trains the manager, gives the manager training in the business, right? And then the manager can use that to start training other people. And so that's how we bring the manager up to speed. And if the manager's not interested or not inclined to do that, then that's a, it's a pretty simple test. If the manager is not, it depends on the business. Use the example of a car wash. A car wash is a much easier thing to organize than maybe a financial services business, right? So, but the manager of a car wash should be able to write out the instructions for how to run the car wash, right? It's a very cool idea. And, you know, you talked about this idea of how do you train people? And how do you look for areas of improvement? Well, if you get somebody who's a really good manager who's sitting down, going through every aspect of your business to write out standard operating procedures, this is the perfect opportunity to answer the question, why do we do this this way? What needs to change in order to make it more effective? And so and be able to have somebody with outside eyes come in and say, well, you know what? If we can change this, we'll become more effective, <laughs> right? And we get out of our our blinded way of doing things that we've been doing for the last 10 or 20 years. I like your process too, right? Is that consider yourself, if I get this correctly, to be the movie director, you're watching what's going on and, and you're being able to see it. And directly to your point, to what you just said, is that being able to make improvements through the development of the standards. So this is what they found in World War II, is that if you get up and you train, so the manager's got to do the training as well. That's mm -hmm. That goes part of part of it. So if you don't have good training material, and that's it's much easier to consider your standards to do the work if you think of it as training material, right? 
And what is true is that in most businesses are siloed businesses, which means that there's not a lot of communication between people and everybody is inventing their own job description because there is no standards, right? And there's problems with communication and I call it the junkyard of problems between silos, right? Where it's not my problem, right? I, you know, this is, this is, I'm doing my job, right? Then when you sit down with the lens grinding and you do the standards, do the training material, well, all the silos disappear because you have to explain it from beginning to end. And guess what? It's really easy to hide in your silo and say, listen, that dumb problem is not my problem, right? But if you want to stand up and train somebody from beginning to end, it's very embarrassing and hard to explain to somebody something that is self-evidently dumb. Mm. You just, you look dumb, you feel dumb. Yep. And you can't answer the big question, why are we doing it like, like this? Exactly, exactly. But if you don't do the, if you leave everybody in their silo, that stuff just festers. Sure, yeah. This has been really great. Could we summarize kind of your points on how people can look at their business today to really figure out how they can get this increased valuation? in their business. So what does an investor, if you're looking at increasing your valuation as opposed to an internal transfer, where that's not as important, right? Because Mm -hmm. it's more about transferring money. But if you're looking at increasing your valuation, a fair market valuation, what is it that investors look at to discount the valuation? Mm. Well, the big discounts are no independent management, no standards, and no growth. And the one thing that we haven't touched on is the idea of growth. And what happens is with growth, this would be the third thing, the business will grow to the size of the inside of the owner's head, and then it will stop. And it's the owner manager who stops working. When the owner manager stops working at nine at night or 10 at night or whatever, doesn't return the the last phone call, that's when the business sort of naturally caps out at about the point, at almost exactly the point that the owner and manager has energy to do the management. And so when there's a really solid foundation, this is something that's that's not discussed anywhere that I've seen, but this is an organic thing that everybody I've talked to agrees with, is that when you start bringing man- additional management bandwidth, I call it, imagine, imagine a pipe. If you start increasing the size of the pipe, you just get more flow. So if you have more management, and you have standards now, and you have training, and you get things, all of that is increasing the flow. And because this business has been in business for 20 plus years, there's been a lot of opportunities. And so what happens when you start doing the process of bringing in managers, creating your training, that's sort of the steps. There's other stuff that we could look at, but those are the big steps, right? And if you can do that, you're miles and miles ahead. You can start doing everything else, right? So bringing in the manager, doing the training material, And then all of a sudden, what happens is I call it popping the champagne cork. You get this gush of organic growth. And it's easy, very, very easy to increase your your bottom line, you know, your EBITDA, your profit by 15% a year. That's like a, I tell people, we don't do that. I've completely failed. That's the minimum. And I've seen much higher than that. So here's how it works. Here's the math, Mark. If you increase your EBITDA, your profit, by 15% a year for five years, you've doubled your EBITDA. Now, if your multiple is a four times multiple because you have no management, you have no systems, you have no growth, 
and you put it in management and you successfully do it over a five-year period. Now we have independent management. Now we have systems. We can train people. And guess what? We had growth of 15% for five years. You're multiple doubles. And now you're at about an eight times multiple. Double your multiple, double your EBITDA equals 400% increase in value. And that's absolutely the minimum. Yeah. To me, anything less than that is just a failure. Yeah. As you're describing all this, I'm thinking about all the big managers who've had their pride surrounded and their identity surrounded in their business, bringing in a manager and constantly kind of holding the manager back by saying, no, that's not how we do things here. Why, why are you doing this? We've never done this before. And this constant barrage. And to me, it's almost like you want people to grow. You want people to move forward, but you're putting the brakes on all the time. So what mindset has to change then for them to take their foot off the brake and let the pro that they hire do their job? Well, it takes courage, right? Mm -hmm. Courage is really the start of everything. John Wooden said that. It's all about courage. Mm. And I think the starting starting point is to realize that, you know, we have all of these fixed mindsets in our mind. These are just things that are artificial. We were literally taught, right, that we're not good enough. We were taught that in school, right? You're a C student. You're a B student. You're just not good enough, and you should know your place, and you should not have high expectations, right? And that all is is nonsense. It just simply is there's no scientific basis for that belief. That's just something that, you know, is a false belief that we're taught. And if you can understand that we really we're all capable of growing and growing is a very healthy thing and it will help you stay young and it will make you enjoy your life better, right? Once you make that connection, then it is very easy. And you take baby steps. You just do it slow. Don't do it in a painful way. You got five years, right? And just baby step your way. You can trust me in five years, baby steps will get you a long, long way. Sure. Just think about it. 24 hours a day. That is a long way. It is. It is. Uh, John, this has been absolutely fabulous. As we wrap up, do you have any last thoughts? Yeah. Well, I think that the real, the big one is it's possible. You can do it. There's nothing here that isn't average, normal, that normal people cannot do right? And it's nothing outside of doing what you do already. It's just organizing it differently. Mm -hmm. And getting rid of the noise and the nonsense and the waste makes literally makes it easier and more fun. And you don't need somebody to help you do it. You can do it on your own. Or alternatively, you can reach out to me, John at intelligentwork.com. And I have conversations all the time with people. And sometimes they want to engage me. And if they don't, that's fine too brilliant. That's absolutely wonderful. John, thank you so much for the time that you've given us today. I really appreciate your knowledge, your passion, your expertise in this. And I hope that the audience has got huge value from this. I bet you any money there are people who've been taking copious notes. So thank you so much for doing this today. (laughs) Always got to like copious notes, right? (laughs) Absolutely. That's when we resonate. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, John. It's great having you on the show. Thank you, Mark. If you have any questions about today's episode or would like to do a complimentary 30-minute brainstorming session with me, why don't you book yourself on my online calendar? The link is down below. It's the one that's marked meetme.so slash Payne. As always, I am at your service. And if you haven't done so yet, why don't you go ahead and subscribe to this feed? Go ahead, follow me on social media. I'd enjoy to have a conversation and continue this conversation with you as well. 
just like John said, you can reach out to John if you if you have this idea of, oh, maybe I do need to start engaging a manager. Or if you'd like to reach out to me, I'm more than happy to help connect you to other people and that sort of thing. And we can see what we can do for you. But one of the things you have to do is you have to talk about what your challenges are and you have to come to grips with that first. So I'm more than happy to give you that 30 minutes of my time absolutely free to make it you time. My name is Mark Kane. I hope that you stay safe, stay healthy, and that you dare to be the exception. Thank you for joining us this week on Experience Leadership. Make sure you visit markhain.com where you can subscribe to iTunes or by RSS so you'll never miss a show. Or go directly to markhainlive.com to watch the video edition of this podcast. While you're at it, if you found today's content valuable, please give us a rating on iTunes. Or you can share it and tell your friends all about the show. As Mark says, knowledge is power, but only if you share it. Be sure to tune in each week for the newest episode. Please stay safe, stay healthy, and dare to be the exception.